I need a shuttle. So the question before us is, does your faith have a resting place? I think that's a, an apt song, is where do you find your rest? I don't know about you, but this week has been exhausting. It's been spring break, so my children are on a weird sleep schedule, which means they like to wake up early when everybody else wants to sleep in. And we have this tiredness that just kind of seeps into our bones. And so while you are living in this land as a, as a pilgrim, moving through life in this journey called uh, faith, do you have a resting place? Can you rest on the Lord even if you are a sojourner, a pilgrim in a land, someone who is journeying through? And when you are journeying through a land, you will have conflict. How many in here has never been into a conflict, never had a family argument, never got into an argument with anybody else? No, everybody. Every single person in this room has had conflict, conflict of some kind. And our passage this morning in Genesis chapter 13 deals with conflict. Now, I hope that when you get done hearing this passage, that your hope will, your, your faith will have a resting place, that you will trust in the living God and have joy in conflict, because conflict is exhausting. As a pastor, I get to deal with not only my own conflicts, but other people's conflicts. Not only do I get to deal with other people's conflicts, sometimes their conflicts are pretty petty, and we have to deal with that, and it's exhausting. It wears us out. But God can bring us joy in conflict. So I want to show you how. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. If you don't have one in the seat in front of you, look to your neighbor and say, hey, hand me a Bible, okay? And we need a Bible. Genesis is the first book in it, Genesis 13. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. That's how we find where things are. So Genesis chapter 13 is where we'll be. As you're getting there, I want to open us in prayer because we are so dependent on the Lord here. In conflict and in life, we need the living God. Father, as we approach this topic of conflict, Father, we know that your word speaks truth. We know that Jesus Christ is the peacemaker, the reconciler between us and you. And if we are reconciled with God, then we can be reconciled with our neighbors. Lord, we know that this life can be hard. This life can be exhausting. Conflict will arise between family, between brothers, between sisters, between cousins and aunts and uncles. And every single possibility of human relationships, conflict occurs. Lord, we know that we are not immune from conflict in this life. In fact, we see that that is a staple in our lives. It's an it's a ever-pervading experience. Lord, we pray for your strength today. Lord, I want to lift up uh, the churches in Sierra Vista. I pray that you would bring people that want to hear the gospel to those churches and that they would proclaim the good news of Christ, the one who brings reconciliation to conflict, the ultimate one being that every single person is in rebellion against the living God and that through Jesus Christ, rebellion can be snuffed out, and we can be reconciled 
to our, through our Savior. We ask these things in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. The people of God are not immune to conflict. Imagine that. When you became a Christian, did you think, okay, great, everything's going to be unicorns and rainbows. It's all going to be soft and easy. No more trouble, no more sorrow. I will just go through life all happy. Someone sold you a bill of goods if they said, once you become a Christian, everything's easy. Because that's not true. It's hard. Life is hard. People are weird. People are weird and people are hard to deal with. People do strange things, don't they? People cut you off in traffic when there's no one else on the road. People go way too fast or way too slow. Your wife says weird stuff to you that makes you just scratch your head and say, who is this woman that I married? I say that because I love her. And she does the same thing to me. She says, who is this guy? Why is he so strange? And so we're not immune to conflict. And our passage this morning deals with the people of God, the person that is chosen by God, dealing with his relative lot. And we all know about relatives. There are certain people that you invite to the family reunion, and there are certain people that you just happen to not have their email address to send out the invitation to. right? And so Abraham and Lot get into an argument. And we see that Abraham is generous and Lot is selfish. One is blessed and the other is kind of cursed. One seeds with faith and the other one is nearsighted. So conflict comes to all people. Verses 1 through 7 show us that conflict happened to all people. Romans 12, 18 tells us that if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so that's a, that's a, a heavy emphasis, that if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so it's a fact of life that we experience conflict. But God calls us to try to live at peace with everyone, as far as it depends on us, as far as it depends on you. So we see that Abraham and Lot, they have an argument. Conflict happens because of their prosperity. God's people may enjoy prosperity. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 5. Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev. And remember that situation in Egypt. That was a tough situation for Abraham. He, he lied about his wife, said that she was his sister. Egypt, uh, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, took her into his home to make her his wife. And then God caused the plague to happen. And so he got his wife back, and they were kicked out of Egypt. They were sent away. But he had a lot of money. He gained a lot of wealth. And remember, some of the wealth is later going to cause problems. And what was the problem? Man, he got too much livestock that the land can't support. So he goes from Egypt to the Negev. He, his wife, and all he had with Lot and Lot with him. Abraham was very rich in livestock. Notice that word, very. Very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. And he went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar, and Abraham called on the name of the Lord there. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abraham, also had flocks, herds, and tents. And so we see that the people of God are prosperous. Abraham was wealthy, and they moved toward the southern area of what is now Israel. Abraham heads back to where they were previously. He goes back to his old stomping grounds before the famine happened. 
and he has all this wealth. Now, the Bible is not condemning wealth here. Don't misunderstand. He's not saying that it's wrong to have wealth. But the problem is, more money brings more problems. I think that's a, a proverb of our day. More money, more problems. So wealth can lead to conflict. Let's go ahead and look at verse 6. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. Not only that, verse 7, And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So this is the promised land that Abraham was given, the land flowing with milk and honey, yet it could not support them. So think about that for a minute. Why could the land not support them? Well, our passage tells us part of the problem is there were already people living in the land, the Parasites and the Canaanites, also known as the Parasites, not Parasites, but I like Parasites better. They were living in the land that was supposed to be promised. So Abraham and Lot, they have so much wealth that the land can't sustain them. The land was already populated, so Abraham and Lot were really living on the outskirts of the land because the Canaanites were already there and the Parasites. So they were living as strangers in a strange land. They were not fully in possession of it. And so because of all their great wealth, they really couldn't sustain, the land couldn't sustain them together. They had so much livestock. They did not have enough property. So... This passage really starts the first of three Lot-Abraham narratives. Lot is contrasted. So this is, this is really fascinating from just a pure literary point. Lot and Abraham are contrasts. So their conflict is more of a contrast than an actual conflict. They, the way they act is what's important to Moses as he writes this. Whereas Jacob and Esau are in conflict. And Isaac and Ishmael are in conflict. So Lot and Abram are contrast. Abram is to represent the people of God, and Lot is to represent the unbeliever. And we see that over and over in Genesis. Lot is passive and foolish, and when he makes a decision, his decisions are typically wrong. And he is a warning to the people of God. So don't be like Lot, but be like Abraham is the emphasis now, obviously, Abraham has his issues, so let's not go there. So how do the people of God settle conflict? Conflict can be settled by the generosity of the faithful. Let's go ahead and look at what is going on. We have established that conflict happens. Everybody here has conflict. And various circumstances bring conflict. Sometimes it's a financial issue, right? You owe me money. You, there's not enough money to go around. I want to go on vacation to this place and you want to go to vacation on that place. I'd like to buy a new car. You don't want to, you want to use your old jalopy, right? And continue to put money into that. We have all these things that happen. Financial reasons, money has a tendency to be the root of a lot of our problems. But we also have emotional or, or issues. Like you don't fulfill my needs, my wants or my desires. My rights are are not being fulfilled, right? You are um, being rude to me. You're hurting my feelings. But the people of God must settle the conflict. We are called to the best of our ability to settle conflict. So Abraham takes the initiative here in verse 8. And what is telling is his generosity. Look at verse 8. 
So we have the problem. The problem is there's not enough space on the land. We have all these flocks, all this stuff, and we can't sustain our, our herdsmen, our fighting. So let's, you and me, let's sit down and come up with a solution. So Abraham turns to Lot and said, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before us? If you, um, the whole land before you. Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. So, what is going on? Abraham is being generous. Think about that for a minute. The conflict comes up. Abraham really is kind of the patriarch. He's kind of the boss. Lot is just kind of tagging along for the ride. Yet the problem comes, and what does Abraham do? He says, look out there. You choose where you want to go, and I'll take the other place. He gives him the first choice. What makes someone like Abraham able to do that? To say, you pick the best, the best area. You take what's best. Now, I don't know about you, but my kids do not understand this principle. Right? It's not so much what's best for you, it's what's best for me. What do I want? And that's where our conflicts come, don't they? I want this car seat, and, you, and I want you to sit somewhere else. It's never, oh, how about you take the better seat, my dear brother? Right? It's always, no, no, I want what I want, and you're going to get whatever's left over. But Abraham doesn't do that. Abraham says, you pick the best, pot, the, the best spot. He provides a solution. And what he does is he shows radical generosity. Instead of taking the best land for himself, he offers radical generosity. So why is that? Why is Abraham offering radical generosity? So I think Abraham learned a lesson or two when he was in Egypt. And I think that he has learned that his faith allows him to give away what God has given him. He can be generous. Think about it. God promised this land to him and his descendants. This promise is not like a prediction, but like a binding contract. So he is saying, oh, you want the house? Take the house. It still belongs to me because God has promised it, but take the house. Take the best spot. And so he says, you can pick it. He doesn't have to manipulate Lot and say, hey, Lot, look over here. Doesn't this area look nice? Why don't you go over there so I can have all this land over here? Right? No, he says, pick, choose. Whatever you want, I'm going to take the opposite. No big deal. Because he trusts in the promises of God. He fully trusts that God will provide what he needs. He doesn't have to manipulate his relative. He says, take it, take what you want. Now, as believers, how can you or how can we be radically generous? A few examples jump out to me. And I think in our time, using our time is a way we can be radically generous. Now, everyone knows, I probably have mentioned this multiple times, my idol in my life that I have to put to death continually is comfort. I like to be comfortable. When I come home at the end of the day, I want to read an old dead Puritan. And I want to sit on my couch and I want to read Thomas Boston or Thomas Watson who tell me how to die to myself. Right? Instead of dying to myself, I want to read about someone who tells me how to die to myself. Right? So I, I go home with my expectations and my wants and my desires and I try to meet them the way that I want to have them met. But when I go home, my kids want my attention. My wife needs my attention. 
There's things at the house that I should be working on. Instead, I get upset when someone comes to me because I'm trying to manipulate the situation. And so instead of having trust and faith and being radically generous with my time, what am I doing? I'm being radically selfish. And we do that with church, don't we? I just want to come to church and have my needs met. I want the pastor to, to preach a sermon that really just moves me or moves other people to action so that I can sit here and be comfortable, right? Or we, we say, man, I really want the air conditioning to be just at the temperature that I need it to be. I'm not worried about the, the other folks that are cold or hot. I want me to be comfortable. Or I want the music to be the songs that I like to hear. Or I want the pianist to play the tune just the way that I want. Right? We become so self-focused, we're unable to be radically generous. And so if the pastor fumbles his way through the sermon, he doesn't make any eye contact with me, I don't feel loved by him, I'm going to go away grumpy because he just didn't do it for me. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to come and God is going to provide. If you have that approach, you will get a lot more out of the sermon than if you come here expecting me to give you on a silver platter or something. If you come here to feed yourself, to be attentive, you will grow. But if you come with a self-focused attitude, you will not grow. And so we can be radical with our time. A lot of people don't want to volunteer in the church because they'll miss out on the sermon. If more people volunteered, we wouldn't have that problem. However, some people are faithful in serving every single Sunday because they know the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide for their spiritual needs in the church. So we have time that we can be radically radical with. What about money? Man, that's an uncomfortable topic, right? Here we go, pastor talking about money again. How can we be radical with our money? Instead of maybe thinking about, man, I really could spend more gems on a, on a video game on my phone, Maybe give to the church, give to a need in the church. There's lots of opportunities. We have lots of missionaries we support. There's ways that you can be part of the ministry of the church in a radical way. Be radical in your generosity. Now, the parable of the forgiving servant really stands out to me because this is kind of what I see as the biggest issue is we need to be radical, radically generous in our relationships because that's, I think, where we're the most stingy. So the parable of the forgiving servant is in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. I want to read, um, I've been debating if I wanted to read this or just tell you about it. I think I'm going to read it because I will butcher it. Matthew 18, 21 through 35 says this, Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Peter's really proud of himself about how generous he is. Jesus replies, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he, became, when he began to settle accounts, one who, brought, who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him, which is about maybe a year, 10 years wages. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this time, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. 
Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. So he got forgiven a huge debt, 10, 10 years worth of wages, um, or 20 years worth of wages for a day laborer. Think about that, 20-year debt is just forgiven. Then the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is about six months worth of wages, or about, or maybe closer, a denarii is about one day's wage. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. So think about this. This man was forgiven a 20-year debt and went over to somebody who owed him about six months worth of wages and began to choke him out. That's the opposite of radical generosity. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, this master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The principle we see is that those who are forgiven much can forgive little. If you have been forgiven a lifetime's worth of debt against a holy, perfect God, why would you hold a grudge against someone who only damaged you a little? That's, that's the principle that we see here, that, that Christians can forgive and be radically generous in their relationships. We are more inclined to be radical in generosity when we realize that all of this is a gift from God, not something that we have taken or conquered, right? We think about the situation in Russia. The Russians, Putin in particular, thinks that Ukraine belongs to him. He's like, this is my kingdom. And he is not really inclined to let them have their land. And we see that he is conquering it. Once he conquers Ukraine, do you think that he's going to say, oh, here you go, take it back? Of course not. He's going to control it with a tight fist. So when we conquer something, when we demand our needs, our wants, our rights, our responsibilities, we are very disinclined to be generous. However, when we are given a gift, man, I just want to share it with my brother or my sister or my relatives. And that generosity is comes from knowing that we have this gift. It's God's kingdom, not my kingdom. So in what ways are you being radical in your generosity? How are you being radical in your generosity? If you're being stingy, you need to ask yourself, am I, am I being like Abraham in this passage or am I being like Lot? Because Lot is nearsighted. Now this is not to be insulting to those of you with glasses, right? Lot is nearsighted. He misses the picture. So we see how Lot makes his decision. Abraham makes his decision in faith by being radically generous. Lot makes his decision by being nearsighted. Let's go ahead and look at how he chooses the best portion for himself. Verse 10 says, Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zoar, was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden. He says, that looks like the Garden of Eden. It's amazing. And the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't look that great right now. 
So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Think about that for a minute. Man, that looks like the Garden of Eden. I want it. I'm going to take it. Then Lot journeyed. Uh, so Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Notice that word for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward. Now, who goes east of Eden? Those that were kicked out of the garden. Okay, just a connection there to Genesis. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now, if our passage didn't go any further, and we didn't know much about this whole story about Sodom and Gomorrah, we probably wouldn't be that impressed. But what do we know about Sodom and Gomorrah? We have a subscription here in 13. Now, the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Think about his choice. Isn't it very interesting, the foreshadowing that Moses is doing right now? He says that he chose to live near Sodom and Gomorrah. He chose to live near the evil cities of the plain. Why did he choose that? Because it looks promising. Look at the Jordan Valley. It looks like the Garden of the Lord. It's like the Garden of Eden. So his, his desire to get back to the garden, to have this perfect life, leads him to be close to the wicked people of the plain. What seems like a great choice by man's opinion or by sight is disastrous for Lot and his family. Disastrous. We're going to find out how many times it's disastrous. Because not only does he get captured and becomes a prisoner of war, later then he gets becomes a prisoner of war to the, to the evil city itself. Living by sight, not faith, I think is one of the most common problems for Christians. How we make our decisions is very much sight-based, isn't it? M many of the counseling sessions that I have is based with, or is with folks who are living by sight, not by faith. Because they have made these decisions and they have continued to follow the same pattern of living by sight. We jump on the most advantageous option. We choose what's the best available for us. We jump at that promotion, even if it's going to take away, us away from our family, even if it's going to take us away from our church. We're going to jump on that. Oh, man, I might have to work all the Sundays, but at least I have this better job that I get more money. How close can I get to Sodom before I get burned? Right? We look at this Garden of Eden and say, well, it's, a, it's close to those sinner, the wicked people, but as long as I don't get too close, eventually you're going to end up living in the same city. We choose what's most advantageous. More money, more comfortable. We seldom consider all the factors. In fact, this is what leads to most addictions. Right? We're promised something, and that promise is a banquet in the grave. That promise is the Garden of Eden in Sodom and Gomorrah. The promise will destroy us. And we become more and more enamored with it until we are in bondage to it. Service and obedience and faith needs to be the driving factor for Christians. It's not how can I serve myself, but how can I serve the other. Abraham, instead of saying, what can I do to make myself better off? says, how can I serve Lot by giving him the choice? Conflict settled in faith is blessed by the Lord. The Lord reaffirms his blessing now to Abraham. 
This section shows us how Abraham could offer the land to Lot so freely because Abraham trusted in God's promise. Look at verse 14. After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abraham, Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west. Now, I don't know about you, but that's like everywhere, right? Look everywhere. For I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamar at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Think about this for a minute. The Lord says he will remain with faithful Abraham. Verse 14 is interesting because it contrasts with verse 10. Let's go ahead and look at verse 10. It says, Lot looked out and saw the entire plain. So Lot, of his own initiative, looks and saw. Whereas in verse 14, what does it say? The Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are. So Lot looks and takes. The Lord gives to Abraham who looks and is given. There's a major difference between the two ways that these the promise remains. The Lord's instruction to Abraham is to look all over and see the promised land. Like really see this. He says, don't even just look at it. Go and walk the whole area. There's a theme that Genesis likes to bring up. Adam and Eve walked with the Lord in the garden in the cool of the day. Enoch walked with the Lord. Noah walked with the Lord. And now the Lord is instructing Abraham to walk with him around the promised land. And what we also see is that the faithful continue to worship. What's interesting to me, literarily, is that Abraham starts at the altar up here in Bethel. And he ends with an altar. Abraham is a worshiper. The, the way that you are able to remain faithful is through your worship. That's why I emphasize coming to church uh, in person as much as you can. Because worship strengthens your faith. The chapter ends the way it starts. With worship and an altar to the Lord. Abraham was a man devoted to the Lord. Even with the deception incident. Abraham was still a man who worshipped the Lord. Even in conflict, Abraham waits on the Lord to fulfill his promise. What I think we need to, to learn from this is that Abraham begins to show us a pattern of self-sacrificing. The type of self-sacrificing faith that Jesus emulates. So at the same time, we really see it dimly here. right? We don't really It doesn't stand out to us. Abraham is not putting himself to death here in this passage. He does eventually take his son Isaac and offers him as a sacrifice before the Lord stops him halfway through. We have this self-sacrificing faith. So we have this pattern that repeats and culminates in the king of peace who will ultimately end all conflicts. Who's going to end the conflict in the end? Jesus. How does Jesus end the conflict between Humanity and God. The wrath of God is poured out on the Prince of Peace. Self-sacrifice. 
But not only that, it allows us to live a life of self-sacrificing joy. Now, the author of Hebrews really puts this into perspective for us. Hebrews chapter 10 is really a great passage to talk about this self-sacrificing faith. Hebrews chapter 10, 32 through 36 says this. Now, remember, the author is writing to Christians who are enduring trials, who are suffering. And it says this, it says, Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, which means you become Christians, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted, listen to this, accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. If the government called you and said, I'm coming to your house and taking your big TV, would you accept that with joy? I think it would be hard for us, wouldn't it? Confiscation. Because you're a Christian, we're going to take your stuff. Because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession Take my TV, take my iPad, take my iPhone. My possession is greater. What? Think about that. I don't know about you, but I, I carry a gun for a reason. Nobody's taking my stuff. But would I be willing to have my stuff plundered with joy for the sake of the Lord? And if I am, how do I get there? How do I get to that point? Right? How do I do what Abraham did and say, you know what, Lot? You look at the best property. Choose what you want. That's yours. I will take the leftovers. Radical generosity by holding to the promise is how you can have joy in conflict. This is how you can be radically generous because Jesus Christ purchased something far more significant for the Christian. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 is one of my favorite passages. It says, Blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, I don't know about you, but my clothes fade. My TV doesn't have the same luster that it did when we first bought it. Our electronic devices wear out. I think that's on purpose, though, because I think Apple does that on purpose. Your battery dies, right? Everything in this life fades. If you look at our chairs, we bought 50 more chairs recently, and you can tell the difference between the old ones and the new ones because one is faded and one is darker. Everything in this life fades. All your possessions fade. But there's one thing that doesn't. And that is the promise. The promise of Jesus Christ. So the people of God are satisfied in and by the promise. While the unbeliever is ever seeking the things of this world. The plains of Sodom and Gomorrah look appealing to the people of the earth. The flesh pots of Egypt 
look enticing to the Israelites who are in the wilderness. They are not satisfied in Christ Jesus. They are not satisfied in God's portion for them. Does this change how you view conflict? I don't know about you, but it changed how I view conflict. As I studied this passage, I said, you know what? Why do I get into an argument over my needs, my wants, my desires, when it's the living God who gave his only begotten son for me? If he gives me his son, he knows what I need. He knows what's good for me. What do you think? Are you holding on to the things of this world more than the living God? Can you rejoice in Christ when you're wronged? Can you count it all joy when someone cuts you off in traffic? When your sister calls you up and calls you bad names? When your dad takes away your allowance? When your mom says you can't have that, I don't know, your favorite food? Can you count it all joy when people take away the things that you think are valuable? Can you sing in the ashes and the dust of a burnt down church like the Christians in Uganda, Christians in Ukraine, who are on their knees while the mortars land around them, praying to the living God? They don't count this world worthy of their energy. And you and I get mad when our Netflix account goes up 20 bucks or when the internet doesn't work. Can you trust in Christ even when your earthly goods are plundered and destroyed? Can you trust in Christ even when other people are taking from you and you never give? The people of God can be the most generous people of all. How can you be more satisfied with God so that when conflict comes, you can be radically generous? That's your challenge. How can you be most satisfied in Christ so that when your conflict comes, because there will, it will come, it probably will come in about 20 minutes once this is over. What dinner, what place are we going to go get food? Right? When conflict comes, how can you be more satisfied in Christ so that you are able to be radically generous? Think about that this week. How can you be radically generous by trusting in Christ? Let's close in prayer. Father God, we open up this passage and we are just blown away about the standards that you have. Father, we know that this is impossible. This is an impossible task for the unbeliever. No unbeliever can be radically generous because they don't have any hope but this life. It sounds counter-cultural, counter-everything that we've ever been taught to give up our rights because we have something greater in heaven. And we can live a life of joy in this very day, in this very moment, because we can take the plundering of our things because our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. Lord, we long to have this vision of faith. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would be radically generous. Radically generous at church. Radically generous in their relationships, forgiving others, even as Christ forgave us. 
being radical. Lord, if there's someone in this room that does not know you in a life-changing way, that you would convict their heart and, and show them that they are a rebel living against the holy and perfect God. And we know how badly things end for the rebel. Yet Christ died for me and died for those who belong to him. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ who gave up all, all his, his kingly palaces and came down and became a man so that he could come to die. Lord, as we approach Easter, our mind needs to be on this death. Our mind needs to be on this more than we celebrate Christmas. We should be celebrating the coming of our Lord. Because we can give up all things for the joy set before us. As Christ gave up all things for the cross. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. Despising the shame. Lord, we ask these things in the power of Christ. In the comfort of the, the Holy Spirit, the great comforter. We ask these things in your name. Amen.